Hi, I'm Mike Murphy. Will 5G change the world? Absolutely, because it has all the technical foundations that didn't really exist before, and there's the global incentive to do so. This is Sean Kinney, and welcome to Will 5G Change the World, the usually weekly podcast where we engage with a wide variety of industry experts to answer that important question. But first, in an effort to get to know our guests a little bit better, we like to pose three questions from the Proust questionnaire. Mike, are you ready for those? Yes, I am. Okay, question number one. What is your greatest fear? My greatest fear. My greatest fear is not being perfect in the things I do. And question number two, what is the trait that you most deplore in yourself? Being an extreme introvert. And the third question, Mike, which person do you most admire? Well, I think that one, I would have to go with uh, both my parents who um, lived a very hard life but persevered and did very well at the end. So Mike, this uh, episode we're recording in early November, it'll air in the mid part of the month. And I, I guess that puts us in the uh, appropriate sort of time window for media reflection on what we learned from the, the year that's finishing up and what we expect for the, the coming year. Uh, for me personally, one of the big takeaways I had from 2020 was around just open RAN. It was the focus, a lot of coverage, a lot of news items that we put out. And we can talk more about that later, but I'm curious, you know, what was your big takeaway from 2020 as we saw three tier ones in, in U.S. and lots of operators around the world make significant traction with building out and commercializing 5G? Any uh, particular milestones that jump out, as, at, out at you as really significant? Well, you know, we had the launches in uh, 2019, uh, but at least in the U.S., there wasn't that much growth in terms of the subscriber side. I mean, part of that being due to uh, not having an Apple product, which has a very significant market share in the U.S., and the other is uh, most of the devices being a little bit expensive. So I think that's mostly gone away in 2020. So now we have uh, both the Apple announcement for the iPhone 12, as well as uh, both uh, mid-tier and low-tier devices. So I think we're well set up for larger scale growth going into um, 2021. The other thing is we got over some fairly complex technical hurdles in 2020 with the uh, launch and deployment of standalone architecture and DSS for uh, spectrum sharing between LTE and 5G. So I, I, I find that 2020 has set us up well for, for uh, larger scale growth and um, being in a good spot in terms of uh, the technical capabilities that we have already uh, deployed in networks today. You know, I mentioned Open RAN as a, as a thing that took a lot of my attention this year. Um, spoken a lot about it on this show, in fact, with your colleague Sandro Tavares and, and heard a lot from uh, Marcus Weldon and, and other people at Nokia about uh, Open RAN. But uh, I wanted to maybe float a premise with you that ties that in to my amateur interest in economics. So let me know what you think about this. Creative destruction from Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter, where innovation catalyzes, and I'll quote from him, 
uh, a process of industrial mutation that continuously revolutionizes the economic structure from within, incessantly destroying the old one, incessantly creating a new one. So if I'm an open RAN optimist, I'd say that this type of approach to building the RAN could challenge the way that Nokia is accustomed to selling radio gear and force you to really lean into opening up interfaces and embracing modularity and, and really thinking long and hard about some of your software strategies. And all of that would maybe be to the, to the detriment of selling these integrated radio stacks. On the other hand, if I was going to be cynical about Open RAN, and there's a lot of people that are, I'd say it's not mature enough, it, it can't scale quickly enough. Uh, 5G, you made the point with DSS and transition to standalone, this is already happening today. So 5G is moving fast. To support that, we might need integrated RAN. So where do you fall on that that continuum of, of optimism and, and skepticism? And then to my premise around creative destruction, have I, have I wildly overstated things? Or do you think maybe there's some applicability there to how this might shift vendor dynamics? Well, I don't see a contradiction in the optimist or the cynic or the creative destruction comments. So you you can't stand still. Uh, one, one of my favorite sayings is from Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive. So as you know, technology as innovation moves forward, you, you have risk and opportunity. And if you stay where you are, you, you have the risk, of course. I mean, <laughs> Uh, Nokia handsets is one, perhaps one of the greatest examples of that. So you have to move forward. So even though um, the, uh, I guess it would be the optimist in you says Oran is going to be successful and therefore perhaps destroy some of the business that Nokia has. I, I mean, there's an, an element, some element of truth there. I would say rather than destroy, maybe it evolves and you, you simply can't ignore it um, because it's a glo there's a global backing to it. And we inherently believe independently of the impacts of Nokia that it's actually the right way to go. So we have to embrace it and not try and fight it. But then on the cynic side, you say it's not much mature enough, can't scale fast enough and 5G still needs to progress today and progress quickly, that is also true. It is a fact, like I said in my Senate testimony, that ORAN is not mature. And it's not appropriate for New York City, Times Square on New Year's Eve today. Um, likewise, it's also perhaps not appropriate to be forced onto rural carriers who have perhaps less headcount and, you know, we're still going to be challenged by some technical um, integration uh, things that may come up and they don't have the headcount for that. So it's not to say that it will never work. It's I, what I like to say is that there's a right time and a right place for ORAN and uh, it will mature, it will get better. It will sometime in the future. I think it's quite a few years away before you'd wanna put it in Times Square but there are situations where it applies very well, perhaps even uh, today. So it's just a, a question of uh, application at the right time and the right place. And we have to embrace it partly because it's the right thing, partly because um, 
you know, just the industry overall is demanding it. You mentioned your your Senate testimony, and I, I want to talk a little bit more about that. And uh, I can't do justice uh, in describing all of the relevant back matter here. Uh, just the format won't allow it. But just, you know, real quickly, we've got this notion of national races to 5G. We've got some fairly novel East-West geopolitical dynamics that are playing out. We've got rip and replace in the U.S., which Open RAN is a part of that. But, um, you know, to continue this mix of, of telecom and economics, when you testified in March, uh, one of the comments you made was around the Chinese government providing investment to Chinese NEPs and how we do not see something similar playing out in the West. So specific to R&D, you said that if policymakers want to ensure a diversity of suppliers, they should support a a level playing field. So in that context, that would mean government investment in R&D in in the West. So we have some of that today with the National Spectrum Consortium and U.S. Connect, but you called that uh, ultimately insufficient in scope and resource level. So a couple questions here. Um, do you agree with this notion that 5G is a race between countries and the winner will reap the bulk of the uh, economic gain that would be associated with leadership there? And then specific to the, to the vendors, as we see Huawei and ZTE continue to get pushed out of Western markets, I mean, they're out of the U.S., they're out of the Five Eyes countries, they're out of Italy, out of U.K., you know, does that logic around government-backed funding start to change? Uh, I guess to put that another way, does a government need to invest in a, in a in a team if their competitor isn't in the race anymore? So, for the race, where that originally came from is the economic economic impact to a country. So, CTIs it says, you know, there'll be roughly 250 billion investment in 5G in the US, you'll create 3 million jobs and have five to 600 billion impact on the economy. So independent of China, you want that to happen and you want it to happen quickly. So even forgetting about a race, you just, you, you want that to happen in your country. The secondary part of the race comment came from, once you do that, once you widely deploy 5G, as was the case with every previous generation, it spawns off new industries. So arguably Uber, YouTube, uh, perhaps you could even say Google Maps, a number of um, entrepreneurial launches happened because they had that uh, foundation coming from in particular 4G. So we think that will happen with 5G as well, and maybe even more so, more widespread. So again, you, you, you want that to, to happen, ideally launch initiating from your country rather than somebody else's. So there, there is a race in that aspect, but you, you, you can forget about the competition part. You just need it in your own country. You need to be ahead. Um, so, and for the part about um, uh, leveling the playing field, I think, um, it, it spans more than just uh, R&D. Um, for example, uh, it's well known that uh, Chinese vendors have uh, preferential treatment in terms of financing from the banks to uh, do deals in places like Latin America, or Afri- Africa, and Asia. 
And so we need to level the playing field from that perspective as well, from financing, as well as R&D, maybe some support of industries, um, and even looking at next generation. So I had uh, multiple calls the last two weeks on uh, government agencies and uh, ATIS, uh, looking at uh, supporting both 5G evolution and 6G work. So you have to look at this from a total ecosystem perspective, um, not just R&D. So that's kind of where the comment uh, insufficient in scope and resource level came from. Um, now, you, you, you've made the very interesting comment of, you know, since Huawei and ZT are somewhat getting pushed out of Western markets, um, can we just forget about all this? Well, I think it's the same logic as I said about the race. Uh, even if they weren't pushed out of the Western, uh, Western markets, um, you would still want industry within a country or a collection of countries to keep pace with the rest of the world. So, you know, even without that geopolitical restriction on supply chain, I still think you want to do these things anyways. And unfortunately, the U.S. hasn't been super great in that. So especially the, uh, you know, Europe, Japan, Korea, China uh, had very fairly significant programs to support 5G in the past, the U.S. less so. Now we're going towards 6G and we're saying, well, you know, perhaps we should fix that. And that's why you see these initiatives like NextG from ATIS. And there's another one coming up, which I can't mention yet, but I think you'll see a lot of that happening. Um, and then on the industry side, uh, just to give you an example, there's a number of uh, uh, forums or alliances, consortia, whatever you want to call them. One's called GUTMA for drones. One's called the 5GAA for the Automobile Association. One's called 5GACIA for industry. These are uh, uh, alliances of similar companies who want to evolve uh, standardization, in this case, 3GPP, to make sure that their, their use cases are taken care of as fast as possible. And in these three big alliances, the US doesn't dominate any of them, at least in terms of memberships. So just to give you an example, 5G ACIA is largely dominated by European countries. So what does that mean? It means that the use cases that European manufacturers and industry think are important to them are probably going to get uh, a higher priority in terms of getting specified in 3GPP and therefore devices made for them and then for the, therefore the use cases executed. So I think the US could help in that area as well, um, not only developing the technology and helping it get deployed, um, but also on the use case side and helping uh, industry to uh, accelerate their input and therefore adoption and therefore all the side benefits that come from that to the economy. If I could maybe ask a follow-up question there, and that was all very interesting and helpful context. But it, when I start to think about 6G and I try to tie that back to this idea of, of a nationalized race with countries that obviously have interests they're trying to protect. You know, in, in a U.S., we've got a number of pieces of legislation that could potentially 
provide funding to open RAN suppliers and uh, subsidies to rural operators to use that type of equipment. Uh, when we look at Japan, I, I recently saw a presentation from, from Rakuten uh, around their partnership with NEC, and there was a little Made in Japan logo on there. Uh, India, another example with uh, Geo and, and Reliance Industries. Uh, granted, there's very interesting sort of import environment as it relates to, to the Indian market, but it's maybe not fair to call this economic protectionism, but if we continue down this course, do we run the risk of undoing what we've done with 5G in terms of creating a, a global standard? If we project that forward, do we run the risk of seeing a, a east-west bifurcation or even more fragmentation in the development of standards? Well, if we keep standards aside for a second, we definitely can see 5G was a trigger point towards countries looking more closely at, at what we're talking about here. In a sense, looking more closely at nationalism and how can they lead more so than they have in the past. And I think what you're seeing um, as we, there's a recognition of how important 5G is to the future of the countries and the impact it will have. And that, that didn't really happen in 4G, I think. But in 5G, it's, it's essentially done. I mean, uh, we're rolling out network standards are well-defined and now we'll be incrementing for the next 10 years. There's still a chance to change the, the picture going into 6G. And I think what you see as we, we looking at that transition, albeit it's 10 years from now, that there's a increasing amount of nationalism. Nationalism in the sense of um, standards in supporting indigenous vendors. I mean, ORAN at its heart was, in, at least in terms of the uh, Open RAN Policy Coalition, was aimed at increasing uh, indigenous suppliers in the US, helping the e ecosystem so that uh, it wasn't only limited to uh, foreign suppliers. So there's this somewhat of a push uh, towards nationalism in the, in the sense of being leaders going into the next generation. An aspect of nationalism is exactly that, that there is some risk towards bifurcation of the standards in particularly between the West and China. I mean, the geopolitical situation uh, is perhaps exacerbating that. But I think uh, many countries and vendors and uh, members of the ecosystem don't want that to happen. So there's a, you know, there's a concerted effort to try and prevent that. Um, so, you know, we're very hopeful that it, it won't happen. I think it's bad on a global perspective, not only on a, you know, East versus West type of thing. So we're not going to solve this uh, on the podcast today, but I, I do appreciate you taking the time to, to really give us some deep context on that. So maybe now we can look ahead to 2021, engage in a little educated uh, speculation. I've been really interested in, in kind of what's next for private networks. Uh, we're seeing spectrum access increasingly liberalized around the world, CBRS in the US, 3.6 in Germany, just two examples. Uh, technology is getting easier to consume. 
there's clear demand from all of these high value vertical uh, industries. Nokia is very active in this space with both LTE and 5G. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what some of your expectations are around private network adoption uh, going into 2021. Sure. There's, um, let me start at a slightly higher level and then I'll get back to your question. So every generation is a disruption. Uh, 5G, and we, we could, I, I like to think of it that 2G to 3G to 4G were somewhat linear extrapolations of each other, bigger, better, faster. 5G also does that. It is a linear extrapolation of 4G in some basic capabilities, but it's also fundamentally different. It provides a technology base that be, that can be used for many, many other industries that uh, no other generation could be for us. Or it has, it has the technical foundations to be used in a much greater variety of industries, in particular verticals or private industry. So we see the interest um, uh, is significantly greater in 5G than it was in 4G. Now, I, I should be a little bit cautious on that. There was a lot of interest even back in 3G. I used to be the head of 3G R&D, by the way my older days. And we had these discussions on vertical industries way back then, but nothing ever happened. And 4G, essentially the same, not much happened. So now we come to 5G and the question is, is it going to happen this time? And we believe it really will because we have all of the technical foundations there. There's no excuses anymore from a technical perspective. So the only question remaining is whether uh, the business cases will work. And so we're at the stage now where um, we, we, we actually see the business cases working in 4G for some private networks. Uh, so I think you know, that's not going to stop when we go to 5G for just basic mobility private networks. The, uh, the harder part is when we get into uh, IoT type applications or fundamentally digitizing uh, enterprises or private networks or verticals, however you like to define them. And I, when I looked at this the last, especially the last few weeks, because uh, I have uh, some pre presentations coming up on this topic. And I think what you see is a, a bit of a, I call it a shotgun approach where everybody is essentially trying everything, both from the carrier side, from the vendor side, and even the government, you know, the U.S. Department of Defense uh, has launched some uh, proof of concept projects. Tranche One has already been awarded about 200 million for five different bases, each one with different um, vendors and different use cases. There's a Tranche Two coming up, which is even bigger. It's about 400 million. But when you put them all together, we're, we're essentially trying everything. So that's kind of the stage we're in. And then the, where, you know, what will be interesting is which one of those actually follow through to commercialization and have a business case that makes sense. And we always had that challenge with 3G and 4G it was first, we had a technical problems. It couldn't really do things as well as 5G. And secondly, you know, was there, was there actually a business case there? Uh, I have some favorite sayings from panels I've been on where I didn't make the comments, but my colleagues from Carrier said, called IoT a river of pennies or 
my favorite was uh, decimal dust. So it's always uh, more challenging when you get into the IoT space about whether the business cases make sense. So if I put, for example, um, IoT and all my robots in a factory and remove all the ethernet cables, does that business case make sense? So I think we're at the stage of assessing that now. The good part, like I say, is the technical hurdle is over. But there's no doubt that some of them absolutely will follow through. And uh, I think that'll be the big significant difference between 5G and 4G, that we, these will happen and will be successful. And so going back to your original question now, private networks, private networks for mobility, absolutely it's working in 4G, it's gonna keep working 5G, and then applying 5G in different ways beyond just mobility into actually digitizing companies. We have a lot of faith in that as well. So we've talked about a few different things that are, are gradually pushing change evolution throughout the industry. And um, when we were scheduling some time for this recording, uh, your colleagues told me that you wanted to talk about disruption. So I, I've got a, a scenario here I wanted to float, get some reaction for you. Uh, internally at, at RCR, we're in the process of putting together our 2021 editorial calendar. I've got a pitch here from one of my colleagues for a, a report called The Role of Hyperscalers in Industrial 5G. Will they usurp carriers? So as we think about private networks, um, consumption models, this long arc of, of disaggregation that we touched on when we were talking about open RAN, how do you see that as a, as a vector for disruption? And, and what else are you tracking that might come out of nowhere and make us re-examine the way we've done things and we're planning on doing things? So as both of us mentioned, I mean, 5G in itself is a disruption, but what's interesting is at the same time, almost accidentally, there's a confluence of multiple other things happening in the industry that are also disruptions. It's almost like the perfect storm. So we talked about ORAN. With ORAN, you kind of naturally talk about VRAN, even though they're, you know, orthogonal in, in practice. Um, you mentioned Rakuten and Geo. They're both looking at essentially being like carriers and offering uh, product solutions. Uh, we have geopolitical situation, we have the verticals, we have the web scales, and it's all happening at the same time. In fact, you could argue a lot, a lot of these things we'll see in 2021. So there's a confluence of multiple disruptions. Um, for the particular case of hyperscalers or web scales, um, we, we, yes, it's, I mean, it's a statement to the obvious because you can see a press release almost every week about some partnership between a web scale and a carrier looking at edge solutions, uh, mobile edge computing or joint, joining forces uh, to pursue enterprise opportunities. So there's little doubt that the hyperscalers or web scalers are edging closer to telecom networks. And again, you know, you, you can't hide the elephant in the room, you know, with Microsoft's acquisition of Affirmed and MetaSwitch, the constant question is, will they go further? In particular, will they look at RAN solutions become, for example, a competitor to Nokia, Ericsson, Samsung? 
So we, 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 we see that's happening. We see it's inevitable. Um, we don't really see it as a threat at the moment, either for the carrier or for the vendor, like in our own case. The carriers have an indisputable uh, differentiation with the ownership of spectrum and the ownership of sites. It took 30 years to get 300,000 sites in the US for 4G. Um, there is nobody who can suddenly start replacing that or suddenly start buying up all the spectrum. So they have a differentiation of that and the customers that come with that that probably can never be taken away. So we think that is essentially safe and won't change. And likewise, our, um, our business to supply into that space won't change necessarily. Um, and for the hyperscalers or web scales getting involved in other parts of the networks, whether it be private networks or in some parts of the carrier uh, public mobility networks, we, we don't necessarily uh, see a competition there. It's more of what are the partnerships we should do and what are the platforms we should look at to supply our software. So, you know, uh, to give examples, AT&T, uh, Verizon, arguably Docomo have, have or had their own cloud platforms and are looking perhaps a little bit more so towards web scales to look at their platforms as an alternative. So that naturally drives us to look at supplying our virtual network functions on top of their platforms. but not necessarily in a negative way. It's just a, a different delivery model, a different platform. So going back to your basic question, hyperscalers, absolutely, they will enter. We don't see them usurping the carriers. It's more of a cooperative arrangement. And for us, it's more of a delivery mechanism and a partnership of how we uh, work with them uh, together. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation today, but I did want to revisit the this core question, will 5G change the world? Uh, I think a resounding yes is, is what I'm hearing from you, but maybe you can help me contextualize it a little bit more. Um, you know, you mentioned that in, in some cases, 5G is a linear progression from 3G, 4G, 5G, and that it's, you know, it's more, it's faster, it's lower latency, but it's it's also bringing foundational new capabilities that have not existed before that can address uh, a lot more than just mobility. Uh, so what do you look to as an indicator to let you know that it is, it is happening or it is about to happen or it has happened? Is it the same kind of, you know, GDP forecast that we've both seen 5G will create X amount of economic value over the next 10 years, or is it something more abstract than that? Well, let's put a time dimension to this. So as you could guess from my comments, I do think 5G changes the world because it has the technical foundations for it. That's one part. But right now we're at the linear part. We've deployed mobile broadband networks. You know, how, I mean, that's a linear extrapolation of 4G. Uh, so we're not changing the world right this moment. We're, better, we're providing a better 4G. But going forward with those capabilities to enter private networks or verticals and per the discussion before, that's the part that starts changing the world. 
so that will come, but it's a few years from now. It's going to take time. And the, the main indicators, I think, um, back in, I made the comment about 3G and 4G that we you know, essentially went through the same questions. What is killer app? Let's get into verticals and so on, but it never happened. I think, I think the problem back then it was the vendors and the carriers talking about it. And now we have it the other way around where uh, the verticals were actually coming to us. Um, like I mentioned, those three large alliances providing input into 3GPP, that's not carriers and vendors. That's actually the manufacturers. You know, in the industries, it's like a, a Bosch and in the AA, it's like Mercedes and Ford and GM and so on. So the, I think the, the main indicator this time is that it's a pull rather than a, a push. And by the way, that applies to government agencies as well. Um, I moved from Asia to the US in 2014. 2014 till now, I never had a single meeting with an agency on 4G. But on 5G, we can't even, you know, you'd need a lot of hands <laughs> to uh, count the number of discussions on uh, 5G. So there's, uh, I think it's the pull that is the difference that gives uh, more faith that it's going to happen this time. Mike, I really appreciate you having this discussion with me, indulging my uh, somewhat not very well ordered questions but uh it was a lot of fun very informative and i appreciate you taking the time to answer that question 5g changed the world oh thanks very much it's my pleasure will 5g change the world is an arden media production for advertising inquiries contact danny miller at dmiller at ardenmedia.com the show today was produced and edited by me sean kenny Thanks for listening.